Alrighty. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining. This is going to be a Mainnet 2022 takeaways for those that weren't able to join us at our Mainnet Summit. We're super stoked. It was a massive success. We had over 2K in attendance and over 2,000 virtual attendees. Over three days, 236 sessions, 288 speakers um, with backgrounds spanning crypto, TradFi, art, philosophy, NFTs, really anything you could think of. Um, before we jump in, jump in, as always, we'll start with a quick disclaimer. All opinions expressed by our hosts and our guests are merely their own opinions. They do not reflect any endorsements or opinions of their companies. This discussion is meant for informational purposes only. You should not take their opinions as investment advice, as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hosts and guests may hold cryptocurrencies discussed in this Twitter spaces. Additionally, certain Masari employees are required to disclose their holdings, which is updated monthly and available at our website. As always, I'll share a tweet with those disclosures. Let's jump into it. Again, um, an awesome summit. Uh, most of us are getting back on our feet after three days worth of content. Um, and I came to the group here. We've got Sammy, Stephanie, Dustin, and Mihai joining us today, all analysts, um, and kind of touch base on what their general takeaways were from this past week. Obviously, with 236 sessions, there are plenty of themes to take away, but it was interesting that when the group came back with their notes, um, there were some some themes that they all shared um, that they thought might be important, especially in this market, to possibly become catalysts moving into the next bull market. Um, we'll touch on a few things here, that being the tip and summit that ran in conjunction or ran parallel to mainnet. Uh, scaling was obviously a major theme, whether it be L2s, Altel1s, or modular chains. And then we'll finish with uh, app value accrual, something that was highlighted in a main stage panel with Ryan and Chris Berneski. Um, so to start it off, this was something brand new for me. I had no clue that Tippin was even going on, but our speakers here, our analysts, actually went to the event. So if someone want, wants to start, what even is Tippin, and why are, why are you guys excited about it? Yeah, sure. I can go ahead and kick off kind of this subject and explain what Tippin is, and then we can have Dustin and Stephanie jump in with any questions or additional insight. But so Tippin stands for Token Incentivized Physical Infra Infrastructure Networks. It's also known as proof of physical work. Everybody's kind of trying to assign a, a catchy name to it. But overall, um, I guess stepping backwards a little bit, so you have these crypto economic protocols, and what we found over the past few years is that they're extremely powerful at incentivizing and coordinating human activity, right? And so when you use these economic principles to build out this, this real-world decentralized infrastructure and hardware networks, you're able to do it um, much quicker and kind of bootstrap that supply. And so going back to what Tippin is, so it's like this novel token distribution mechanism that essentially rewards participants for verifiable activity in the real world. And that's kind of a mouthful, but just like to break that down a little bit, one of the easiest examples that most people talk about is Helium. So Helium started with its IoT network, and basically it rewarded participants who bought these hotspots, set them up in their windows, and then just kind of contributed to um, Helium's IoT network coverage. And for doing so, they were rewarded with um, token rewards. And so Helium, in a little bit over a year, basically bootstrapped a million um, hardware devices on their supply side. And this kind of got everyone thinking, okay, so like what else can we kind of use these crypto economic protocol um, incentives for? And so that kind of just um, led to like an emergence of different networks that are using these crypto economic principles to bootstrap storage networks, um, compute networks, uh, mobility data networks. Um, there, there's a bunch of these protocols out there now. Um, and so that's kind of my high-level overview. Uh, 
Stephanie, you, you attended the conference too. I mean, what were some of these protocols that like caught your eye initially? Were, were they all kind of brand new to you or um, were you aware of some of them that were there? Yeah, so um, I was really pleasantly surprised um, because when I first entered the crypto space uh, a few years ago, one of the first networks uh, that I ever heard of was Helium. Um, like you mentioned, it's uh, you know an IoT network. Um, and I just thought it was so fascinating that you know anyone could get these little devices and contribute resources and there for in the future people we could you know share IoT together be, I could you know access a decentralized network as opposed to um, you know going through a centralized provider and hadn't really paid attention to the space in a little bit in a little while but was pleasantly surprised to show up and see that there are a few you know a number of other projects building um, there's a pollen network which is you know a similar uh, data network um, which is a slightly different design um, to Helium um, as well. I, I can't recall the name, but, you know, something about uh, decentralized energy, um, energy storage, um, which is, you know, really, really fascinating to help with, you know, the uh, the grid and some of the problems we have, you know, with the energy grid um, at the moment. Um, you know, also, you know, IODEX was there, um, which is also another IoT network. And, and really something that I remember chatting with you on the sidelines is that, um, we know within the last five years we see so many more projects, but given the excitement in the room and you know the, the the speed at which people are building or which projects are building, it felt to us that you know in in a year from now we can imagine that room going from let's say like 150 people to like you know in the thousands, um, and just just so much to build and then so much to learn. And I, I was really happy to learn about a few new projects I hadn't heard about, and yeah, I just feel like they're taking off at this moment in time. I want I want to jump in. Oh, go ahead, Mihai. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that was a great introduction from, from Sammy and from Stephanie. And I would add some of the question that I've got from yeah, quite many uh, people. It, what is actually TIPIN? So what does it stand for? And uh, it is a, a geeky acronym for uh, Token Incentivized uh, Physical Infrastructure Networks. Uh, and I was, uh, I was surprised that very, very few people actually knew about it but they were able to connect to you know the corresponding projects uh, you know assigned uh, uh, assigned to it i did want to kind of uh step back real quick and ask a question so it seems like the few examples that were given either helium or pollen people are setting up small devices to create a network right um so i think it's easy to understand you you purchase purchase this device and in adding to the network you're able to um, to build some sort of revenue or, or accrue tokens by having these pods set up. What were some other examples from a Web3 Infra perspective that were still tip-in or proof of physical work that weren't strictly data or network driven? Like is there um, storage examples or maybe examples that miners might be privy to with ETH moving off of proof of work where the same sort of thing could happen. You're still using a proof of physical work token uh, token structure, but it's not strictly you setting up a hub, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of projects that can actually fit in this proof of physical work framework. And a few... Um, more established protocols that would fit in here can include like Filecoin. So, so Filecoin essentially just is incentivizing um, storage providers to basically go online, um, stake the fill token, and when they do that, they're basically able to offer storage services to the network, and in return, they get um, transaction fees as well as they're awarded the um, network's block subsidy. And so other... Protocols that kind of fit in the compute and storage category include like Rweave and Render. So Render Network is a distributed GPU computing platform. And we have seen, you know, some discussions start popping up after the Ethereum merge where um, it essentially made all GPUs um, on the network no longer needed. People were kind of looking to um, basically take those GPUs that they already had and put them to work on additional, on new um, protocols. And so people were looking at Render as an option, Live Peer, 
um, and Akash as you know viable options. And so there's kind of two types of like hardware devices. I don't want to get like too in- into the weeds here, but like there's non-fungible hardware, and we're all kind of familiar with like non-fungible means. So this this could be like your helium hotspot. So essentially where you locate that hotspot um, ends up like having an impact on the network um, as far as like your rewards and as far as like what type of data goes through your your hotspot. But when you talk about like compute and storage protocols like Filecoin are we even rendered, you could consider the hardware for these protocols to be fungible where if you set up a storage server in Singapore, um, it's kind of the same thing as setting it up in Hong Kong, where like that one terabytes of storage in Hong Kong um, is equal to one terabyte of storage in Singapore. And so you're starting to see like these two different subsectors in the proof of physical work or tip-in um, sector, where you have like non-fungible hardware and then fungible hardware. And so looking into like the non-fungible hardware category, you also we've seen protocols like Hive Mapper pop up and they're basically doing like decentralized maps. And so essentially what Hive Mapper does is they reward um, service providers for setting up like a Hive Mapper, setting up a dash cam in their car. And then they're rewarded for driving around and, you know, um, contributing the data that they record from their dash cam to the network. Uh, you're also seeing this in the environmental um, sector. So we there's this protocol called protocol called WeatherXM, where essentially you're setting up these like mini weather stations where you can set them up like anywhere in the world, kind of like uh, a helium hotspot, and essentially you're contributing like decentralized um, weather data to the network, and you're able to kind of give a lot more detailed. Um, information just because you've got a larger number of um, weather stations out there and it's not just coming from one centralized source. Um, so that's kind of just like a, a list of projects are building in this this overall sector. Um, something I, I think about a lot and I'm curious to hear uh, what you guys think um, is, you know, where where the tokens um, play into to these networks. Um, I feel as though, you know, e- e- there's a few different models, uh, the burn and mint, um, and um, I believe a couple others, and I'll, I'll let you guys get into the, the meat of that because I know uh, some of you are more familiar than me, but um, more so in terms of, you know, how to reward participants in the network, um, my initial thought is, would it be more effective if some of these rewards were, you know, just in, you know, Ether stable coins um, rather than, you know, a volatile currency that, you know, could be affected uh, more uh, w- with more volatility than you know something that we expect to be stable moving forward. Um, so so yeah, I know Live Peer, for example, which is you know decentralized video transcoding, they use um, the LPT token you know as you know a, a staking and security mechanism for people to participate and to provide services on the network. Whereas you know fees um, are are paid and generated in ETH. Um, so I know there's a lot of different you know uh, ways that different projects do this, um, but Curious to hear, um, I think, you know, Sammy, Mihai, what you think of some of the networks that are, you know, not only um, using uh, the, the tokens as, you know, some kind of like security mechanism, but also, you know, having payments be, be in, in the, the native token of the network. Yeah, I can jump on this question first. Um, yeah, LifePeer does something unique where, uh, transactions or transaction fees are required to be paid in Ethereum. But like you said, they still use their native token to reward um, network participants. And that's because, um, you know, you, you can't reward tokens. I mean, this is something that we can discuss here, but I don't think it's possible to really reward um, participants in a currency that's not native to the protocol because at that point someone has to go out there and buy it. Whereas the whole idea behind these um, protocols is that they're able to bootstrap um, bootstrap like if you're talking about physical infrastructure it's able to bootstrap the supply side of these physical infrastructure networks by just using this currency that the protocol can mint um, and so 
if that wasn't the case, if they had to go out there and acquire, say, Ethereum or Bitcoin or USDC, then you need some type of centralized team that's basically going to be willing to fund that um, and commit basically to funding the network. And so I think that kind of goes against the whole ethos in the network where um, the protocol is like this sovereign entity which mints its own currency uh, which it uses to then fund um, kind of the services that the network provides. That's how I see it. I don't know if, if somebody else sees it differently. Dustin, do you kind of have uh, any any takes here looking from the outside in? I, uh, I'm, I totally agree because I mean, you got to think about what these things are really doing. Um, in my mind, like I, I try to equate it back to like, You just cut yeah. off, by the way. All right, is that in my back? Yeah, you're back. All righty. I'll, I'll kind of just start from the back. Um, so, I mean, from a hardware company, right, if you're if you're starting a hardware company, you would have to go raise a bunch of money from VCs. And what you're doing when you do that is you're actually selling equity, right? You're saying, like, here's 20% of the company, give me X amount of million dollars, and I'm going to go buy it and build all this hardware myself. Um what you do with the token is you actually get to say like, okay, but I'm not going to raise money. I don't have to buy any of that. Um, you can just essentially sell the token on a per usage basis. So I can say, Sammy, um, I'm going to give you my token over the next, you know, let's say the next year. If you go spend the upfront money to go buy the pollen hotspot, stuff like that. So where each of the supplier suppliers, so like you running a hotspot, you're the one up the capital, the US dollars, and the, the hard money to acquire, right? Uh, and then the network itself it actually just gets to print essentially, you know, out of thin air its own token and give that to you as reward. Um, and that's a really good way, like you've been describing as bootstrapping, it's a really good way to do hardware startups where you really couldn't have done that before, right? In, the, in an easy way. Um, so, what you kind of do need, and you, you understand like where these products are in their like development life cycle, it's really, really early, right? I mean, you look at the usage on this stuff, is it, it compares very little you know, to the traditional networks. Um, so you're just still in that phase, and I, I kind of probably see that phase lasting for the next couple of years, five years, right? Where you do have to keep selling, sort of call it pseudo-equity, uh, in order to incentivize people to, you know, give you the money, cash, or give you the, the hardware in there. So... I think it's just like a, it's a very natural fit for me, um, having the token inside of the, whether the fee model or incentive model, et cetera. I want to, want to ask a quick question, Mihai, before you jump in there. Um, prior to the, these proof of physical work networks and protocols existing, what was used to bootstrap previously? And then to build off that question, and this is kind of feeding off of Stephanie's question, um, and kind of where Dustin was getting at, what token structure from the existing proof of physical work work protocols that exist right now do you think is doing the best job from from start to finish is the most sustainable? So I think before that, um, mostly inflationary rewards were, were used to bootstrap the network. And I think there are actually two dynamics at play here. So there is the inflationary rewards, but at the same time, um, there is uh, transaction fees that are getting accrued by the protocol actually being more and more used. And you can imagine here that as uh, usage grows and as more transaction fees are getting accrued, essentially the protocol has to print less or issue uh, less inflationary token rewards. And whenever you have like a relatively little usage, then you would essentially need to need to print more, assuming that you don't have like uh, uh, other uh, forms of, uh, of funding. Um, and with respect to the um, token models, so yeah, we've been discussing here LifePeer in, I think there are a couple of other protocols like Filecoin and, and the Graph that offer a kind of commodity services. So whether that is um, decentralized um, data indexing like the Graph or uh, decentralized data storage like, like Filecoin, 
these protocols pretty much uh, require um, their, their node operators to have their skin in the game. So the token model here is a stake for access. Um, so essentially what you do is you stake some tokens in order to be able to uh, do work on, on, on the network. And essentially uh, what does, this thing does is uh, that uh, you incentivize participation into into the network, and essentially this would uh, uh, lead to um, um, you know buying pressure for the token, so to value accrual for for the token. Um, and I think this this model has been uh, used relatively often in the past, but since relatively recently there is a, a second model. Um, that has been quite prevalent out there. Um, and uh, there are protocols like uh, Helium and IOTEX, uh, which was mentioned by uh, Stephanie before, um, who use uh, burn and mint uh, equilibrium um, token model. So here, essentially, the way it works is you have a sort of, you know, prepaid internet data plan whenever you travel abroad. So. But what you what you essentially do is um, you you burn the protocol token and then you get some 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 credit for that uh, in order to be uh, to be used for instance for payments and uh, this again this this usage um, is uh, um, is bringing the um, yeah token price uh, higher um, so these are the two um, so to say prevalent. Um, token models, and um, I, I think especially for um, commodity um, infrastructure services, uh, the first one, the stake for, for access where, where you have skin in the game, um, is uh, um, the one that, uh, that is more, more, more suited. And for, for all the rest, you have uh, burn and mint equilibrium. Uh, perhaps your uh, Sammy, in case, would like to build up on, on top of this. Yeah, I think you did a great job of just giving a good over overview on both um, value capture mechanism or token token frameworks. Um, one thing I noticed at Mainnet was that the BME model universally was looked at as a model that worked and that for sure captured value. But I saw a lot of people starting to doubt its like value capture um, attributes essentially because we really haven't seen it like work properly and so one thing I thought was interesting is initially Akash Network and Pollen were talking about you know using a, a burn and mint equilibrium model but after talking to some of the team members they said they were kind of reevaluating if that was the right way to go because there really isn't any evidence showing that you know, the burn and mint model works and that it does capture value in the long term. So I think that just goes to show how early it still is. And I know we hear that all the time in this industry. But I mean, the experimentation at the token um, mechanism level is still going on, right? So at the end of the day, projects are just looking at how they can reduce velocity and how they can add additional utility to their tokens. And, you know, one of those you want like one type of utility that Stephanie was talking about is being used as like a payment token, right? So that adds a little bit of um, reduced velocity there just because you need to hold the token essentially to, to access the network services. And so I think in the future, we're going to see some innovation start to pop back up and hopefully we, we start seeing that in this bear market, but we're probably going to go, we're probably going to expand past these two token models that we see, which are, um, stake for access and the burn and mint model and hopefully see some some new variation there that kind of um, can help to capture values for these networks. I know Dustin's done a lot of um, thinking on how and if these are going to capture value in the long term. So I'm um, curious to hear your take here as well, Dustin. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of difficult, right? Because, I mean, some of these are commodities and some of them are like kind of competing and, and offering like a like each of those are going to accrue value in a different way, in my opinion. Um, but you're always going to want to, like, you know, I think me, I brought this point up, like scale the value of your token with sort of the demand, right? And the demand is always going to be on 
kind of sort of the application use case side. So like take the stake for use model. Um, your The value of the token is now going to be the marginal value of basically of the supplier, basically what they can earn. So let's say they can earn a dollar. They might be willing to pay 99 cents for the token and stake it and, and capture that value. Um, and that way you can really do scale with essentially the, you know, the demand for the network. The, the question is, is, is how sustainable is that is like and how volatile that is. Um, and it's always going to be difficult for me to figure out how to find a place that you can have a, a constant equilibrium, right? Like you take equities today, you know, reporting earnings on a quarterly basis, the volatility is like maybe relative to the market, but like, you know, something like file storage, and there's a huge, we're going to do a huge migration of file storage, right? Uh, from AWS to Filecoin or, or whichever, right? And that's just a huge spike in volatility and price demand, right? And that's like uncomfortable for, for holders and, and what like. So, you know, figuring out a way to capture value that's like in a smooth way, I think is, is going to be a way. And I, I agree with you, Sammy. I think like looking for innovation around You basically just want to capture the value that you've got. <laughs> in my back. All right. Uh, you just want to you want to capture the value that you've got going on, right? So, and and have it not be competed away. You know, a lot of these are kind of commodities. Um, so it's I think a lot of the value is like sort of actually going to be on the application integration side. So like, sort of that business development side of things. So like, if you're a Filecoin, can you build out those relationships with this application? and all sorts of yeah I, I think a key point that you listed there too is like the volatility between or the vol volatility created with these um, token mechanisms so just like how they basically try to create a relationship between network usage and token price, what that can lead to is that if like network usage starts to decline, so should the token's price, right? And so you get into these scenarios that not, not necessarily like um, a death spiral, but I mean, it could essentially kind of lead to something similar to where if your network starts decreasing in, in, in usage, your, your token price is going to get hit as well. Um, and yeah, that, that point that you touched on with these protocols kind of being able to operate similar to businesses is something that I think we're starting to see as well. So um, just looking at Helium, for example, they're competing with Paul and Mobile on their 5G network. Um, but you're really seeing the importance of like business development and relations start to arise because I think last week we saw Helium announce a partnership with T-Mobile, right? And the idea there is to create some type of basically for the helium network to become its own carrier where you can pay, I think they were saying $5 for unlimited data and you would use the helium network. Um, but in areas where there's no 5g coverage on helium, you would switch over to T-Mobile's um, existing um, network. So I think that, I think it's interesting. We're kind of starting to see, see that um, play out. And, um, yeah, it's, it's probably going to speed up as well now that we have increased competition starting to, to show up on the DY or decentralized wireless part of the sector. I, I think you brought a, a great point with respect to usage here, Sammy, and especially in the case of uh, Helium. Um, it's, it's not only um, about incentivizing um, hardware operators to actually acquire hardware and um, somehow connected to the to the helium network, but is more than that. It's it's actually incentivizing them to um, actively transfer uh, data on the network. And um, I think um, from from the perspective of incentivization, being able to uh, actually support increased usage is uh, the way to to move forward and is the thing that is going to to bring. Yeah, product market fit for um, essentially um, um, POPW um, infrastructure protocols. Um, what we see so far is there is relatively little product market fit, so there is relatively little 
value generation and, and then later on uh, yeah value capturing is even harder uh, because of the relative lack of the usage maybe that's a nice uh, place to move in to our second topic uh, I think you guys made some great points with how how we could see these proof of physical works scale and grow um, obviously highlighting connections with with Web2, if you want to call them that, companies like T-Mobile and um, using BizDev to, to kind of grow their span is important. And the same sort of battle in a different way is happening um, on the blockchain between L2s, Alt-L1s, and modular chains. Does somebody want to give us a quick primer on kind of the backdrop of different approaches that we're seeing um, across these these different projects and different spaces? Yeah, um, I can get us started on that. Um, so, so basically, you know, L1, um, it, it sometimes gets really congested when you bring in tons of new users. You know, we're seeing uh, problems at the base layer where, you know, long wait times or, you know, really high gas fees, um, et cetera. It's just really, really hard to scale um, a blockchain. Um, so, you know, one of the first approaches, you know, that we've seen in the space are, are layer twos, which are, you know, effectively an additional blockchain um, that connects um, to the main chain and, you know, posts all of its, you know, data and state uh, to be verified and, you know, guaranteed uh, by the security of the main chain. Um, so in the case of Ethereum, um, you know, there's Arbitrum, um, there's Optimism, um, you know, etc. Um, there's, you know, tons of different flavors of, you know, how you can co connect an, you know, an L2 to an L1. Um, you know, the most common being optimistic rollups or ZK rollups. Um, I think we can go into that, you know, maybe in this discussion or at a later date because uh, it's quite, you know, technically complicated. But it's basically a way of, you know, verifying that the transactions on the layer two are, are in fact valid and, you know, agreed upon um, to be added into blocks on L1. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> then, you know, alt L1s. Um, are, you know, new, new L1s that we're seeing that are taking a, you know, very different approach to scaling. Um, and some of the most famous ones we're seeing these days are, you know, Aptos and Sui. Uh, both of these projects um, came out of um, uh, Facebook's DM project, uh, which was, you know, closed down. But, you know, they were building a blockchain uh, using the Move programming language, um, which is, you know, an, uh, entirely different than Solidity, um, which is, you know, the most common programming language and, you know, the one we see in Ethereum today. Um, so Aptos and Sui are taking, they have, you know, quite different approaches to, to how they're doing this, but it, it's more about parallel processing. So how can we effectively, you know, make, um, like remain on an L1, but, you know, process different kinds of transactions in parallel. So transactions that don't necessarily, um, you know, uh, contradict with each other. So let's say I, I send, you know, one ETH to Dustin and Sammy sends one ETH to Doug, um, you know, those can happen. Uh, not like they, they don't rely on each other, these two transactions. So how can we optimize um, for allowing things like that to happen um, at the same time and hence, you know, higher throughput? Um, again, very basic. They have, uh, again, different approaches for how they do parallel transactions. Um, and that's, again, a whole other conversation um, and something we could do in the future. But, you know, that's one flavor of, you know, some of these Alt-L1s with, you know, parallel processing. And then uh, finally, some of the modular chains um, the, the one that comes to mind and, you know, who presented at uh, Mainnet is, is Celestia. Um, so Celestia is now how can we um, separate some of the different layers, um, you know, of a blockchain. So namely um, consensus um, and execution, uh, data, data availability and settlement. Um, and actually in L1 or like a, a monolithic chain, uh, th those are all getting processed, you know, together, you know, at the base layer. Um, and so... With Celestia, we're thinking, like, how do we separate that um, such that, you know, again, for, it's just, uh, to, it, uh, sorry, <laughs> in, um, in efforts to, into scale, efforts to scale. So data availability, so basically, like, the construction will be kind of a, a bunch of, you know, different roll-ups um, coming together and having all of their data be available um, with uh, a set of, you know, full nodes and um, light nodes. And what's really interesting about Celestia and what, what's super, super novel about it and what really caught my eye is this idea that, 
you know, the light nodes um, are, are data availability sampling is what it's called. And they're able to t check chunks um, of transactions. And, you know, rather than like a full node, which is always having to, you know, verify and check everything, they're checking chunks of that. But in a really clever technological way, they're able to, with, you know, very high degree of certainty, um, as you add more nodes to the network, you know, verify what the, you know, full nodes or the validator nodes are, are saying without having to do so themselves. So you kind of eliminate this problem of needing um, at least two thirds of consensus nodes, which are honest, because you have this other subset of nodes, which are able to verify that in fact they are, or they are not. Um, again, I think this is a little bit too deep for this purposes. So I'd love to open it up um, to the, you know, to the group and we can chat about um, maybe some higher level things and give uh, these technological concepts some, uh, I, I think it would just be so much better. Maybe we can do another uh, Twitter spaces where we go deeper, but, but that would be the, the quickest overview I can give you today. Stephanie, that was perfect, by the way, last week. <laughs> I read read up a little bit on data availability and dank sharding, and my head almost fell off. So I, I, I agree. Maybe, maybe the simplest way, way to frame it is what are the trade-offs in these different approaches? Why do you need to offload things like data availability? Um, and what issues are they solving at a high level? So, I mean, it's it's really all to me about, like, uh, getting throughput. Um, so let's just take the data availability problem, right? So writing a, a roll-up right now, the way it works, and, you know, Stephanie, tell, tell me if I'm stupid, but um, it, it does the proof, and it writes that proof, too. And right now it's using what's called the call data, and that's only got, like, so much storage in there. Um, and there, that becomes a problem in in the amount of history that you've got available to you if you want to do, do fraud proofs and stuff like this. Um, and it kind of gets very expensive, right? So because you're paying for like a small amount of storage that everybody's really competing for on the Ethereum layer. Um, whereas on some things like Celestia, you say, all right, I want to get rid of all of that transaction computing, all of that other stuff that Ethereum's doing that we don't really need for the roll-up, right? The roll-up really just needs this data storage. So what you do is you say, all right, we take that away. Celestia does that and you say, uh, it's just way, way cheaper, right? So now you can scale the roll-up. So like, if you think about, you know, how much it costs to send a transaction and do stuff on Arbitrum or Optimism right now, you know, you're looking, you know, a couple cents, right? Uh, even up to a dollar for like uh, some more complex tractions, transactions and stuff like that. You know, but if you really think about like, all right, how do we get to, you know, a million users, 10 million users, 100 million users, you know, that cost is going to scale up, okay? So we need to start thinking, you know, years down the down the road of saying, how can we actually get to those user numbers in a way that's cost effective? And that it really comes down to essentially the data availability problem, where we do need to make that ultra ultra cheap and and really be thoughtful on how we're designing some of these uh, you know blockchains. Uh, so the the module of thesis allows like your engineering team to get into each different layer and really kind of optimize it, you know, specific for the application, the use case. Um, and really get cost effective with it. And that's, to me, like, really what we're aiming for with all this. And that's, like, kind of the end goal. Um, because we're never going to, we're not going to just do NFT mints and, you know, a couple thousand people using DeFi, right? We've really got to, you know, if we really want to actually make crypto successful, we've got to, like, get into the ability to optimize um, in the same way that we have now. Um, and that's, to me, that why we're, why we're doing that. Um, yeah, yeah, and I would just touch on um, for for Celestia uh, as the example. Like, you know, there's a scalability trilemma, right? You you're, you're trying to, um, you know, enhance speed, uh, scalability, and security at the same time, and that, that problem is really really hard to achieve. And so, inevitably, when you're designing, you know, these blockchains, like sometimes you have to, you know, like you you don't favor one of them. Um, and so, easily, you can go for uh, if you want to make things cheaper and faster, and sometimes you might like lose out on um, like security and decentralization, right? Um, so something I like about the design of Celestia is kind of like introducing this new paradigm for decentralization. So you're also getting the scalability. You're putting all of these rollups together, um, and you can have you know uh, a, a high number of them that are processing you know different execution layers 
um, in, in, in parallel that, you know, aren't related to each other. So you can work on, you know, scaling, um, you know, lots of different things. But then additionally, you have what, what's cool about Celestia is like the decentralization idea of like introducing these light nodes that are also able to, you know, verify uh, that things are happening appropriately. Because oftentimes, like, you know, when you enhance for scalability or speed, you know, it, it's it's a heavy processing power, you know, on um, the nodes in order to be able to, you know, execute like all of this, right? And so inevitably what you end up doing is, you know, the costs start getting more expensive and then um, it, it, yeah, it becomes more expensive to run a node and you, you kind of get this um, eventual centralization while you focus, you know, like a centralization at the layer of who, who can run the nodes and who's able to do that and who has the money to do so. So what I, I think, like, for me, like, the winning design, like, and the reason why, like, this modular approach is really interesting as well is that not only are you, you know, going for the scalability and the speed, but you're also focusing on these light clients that can be run by, you know, pretty much anyone or on a cell phone or what, what be it, um, you know, when this launches in the future. And they're able to, to also participate. And, you know, you don't have to think about, oh, you know, there's only a um, hundred nodes in the network and they're all run by the same few entities because you can have, you know, a lot of people join in on that and, you know, uh, making sure that um, the, the state is valid and that we're, you know, we all agree. And for clarity, uh, clarity Steph, Celestia is running alongside other chains, correct? It's not a standalone I'm understanding um, that correct. Yeah, so if, if I understand correctly, and, and again, super complicated, so I'm still wrapping my head around the, the, the way it all works, but it's a, basically like a collection of roll-ups. So uh, a roll-up could be, you know, is a different chain in and of itself, so you could, you know, attach Ethereum to that, or you could attach, you know, other, you know, self-sovereign roll-ups, but the idea is that, you know, each roll-up is sovereign um, and independent of the consensus and data availability later, layer. So out of... A question for the group out of these these different approaches um whether they be kind of eats modular vision or a couple of the alt l ones that had main stage sessions um or l2s what would we say we're most excited about stephanie you obviously touched on what celestia can can add to the ecosystem but was there anything else that that jumped out to people or was promising For me, it's, I mean, it's a hard question to answer, right? Because, you know, a lot of these things almost get you fairly similar results, right? You can do a paralyzed processing chain on a Cosmos versus, you know, uh, like an Aptos chain, right? Or you can do a roll-up onto Ethereum or you could do a roll-up on Celestia, right? Uh, to me, like, it's really going to get down to, like, really, what are the applications that are going to build on these things? What do they actually need? Like, what is that killer feature? Um and to me, there's a wide variety of things and like kind of you get into the trade-offs of things. So, you know, just because it's fast, does that mean it's also got users on the system? Like Ethereum's already got a lot of liquidity. It's already got trusted security. It's kind of got, already got that sort of brand image, if you will, um, versus something like an Aptos does not. So if you're a builder building these applications, is is that a trade-off you're willing to make? You know, maybe yes or no. Uh, maybe you need the parallelization and the, the high throughput, right? The sub-second finality. Maybe that's really important. Um, so for me, it's like kind of this blend of both is kind of what I think will sort of like will gravitate towards where we need the sort of existing, um, you know, presence, if you will. So, you know, you're going to want to have like, all right, users already got MetaMask downloaded. Users already kind of trust Ethereum, even like your call it institutional users or like, um, you know, corporation type users. Like there's a, there's a trust with Ethereum there. Uh, and you've already got a lot of infrastructure, best coding practices, et cetera. Um, and I think builders are like kind of value that, right? Because like you're gonna, like think about coming out of a bear market, you're gonna have to like get a whole new set of users and like educate them again. And it just could be a little bit easier to me if you're on Ethereum. And if you do get, um, you know, there's something fuel, I don't know if we touched on or not, but like, you know, they're, they get paralyzed, you know, sub-second finality too, because they've got like this high performance execution layer. So, you know, that's sort of a blend of both where you kind of got Aptos-esque, like not all the, you know, cute features you do get with the move language and everything, but, you know, is that kind of a, a blend of the trade-offs, right? Is that, is that get you where you need to go? Um, but just to, you know, boil it down, it's it really, to me, the 
come down to the builders? What do, what do they need and like specific to their application? I think that's like really what we need to focus on. And like, we need to start asking ourselves really what is that next level application, right? Um, you know, if it's decentralized social or something, right? Okay, that, that has a different set of user requirements, cost requirements and stuff like that. You know, if it's, uh, you know, more DIY and like we're really kind of using this stuff then uh, from an infrastructure perspective, all right, that's a different sort of throughput. So you know, we need to nail down exactly what is that application we're targeting and that, that'll, to me, define what the, the key or the, the winning base chain is. I totally agree with uh, Dustin on both the developer needs. Uh, well, uh, Stephanie, also... you're really in the weeds on, I guess, more of how all this is really architected out, right? I mean, so like, is there? Do you think there is like a key like winning feature? Do you think it is like the self sovereignty of like the the Celestia rollups? Is that like to you like as you study stuff? Is that really um, what you think it is, or you know, are, also the group? If you guys also got opinions, be high, Sammy. Yeah, uh, I'll let Mihai take over. I, th I think Dusty might not have heard him, um, but but he, he had just gotten started there. Um, but but I do largely agree with you. What you said, it kind of depends on um, you know the specific needs of the the project that's being built. Um, but I'll, I'll let Mihai take it away. Yeah, totally. I agree with you, Dustin, uh, both on the developer needs, but but also on the uh, next type of application that will need to be to be built. And as a matter of fact, you you mentioned Ethereum that is um, currently so popular and has attracted like so many so many developers. And even if we if we look in terms of like um, uh, scaling needs. If we look at um, you know the number of daily active users, so Ethereum has like 500k uh, daily active users, but then if we abstract away to let's say the traditional world and we look at um, gaming, so we look at Fortnite and it has 30 million daily active users and uh, it has several million players that actually play concurrently and um, if we go towards social media if we go to twitter which we are on just right now um yeah this is 240 million daily active users so essentially we we see like so many orders of, of magnitude higher needs than what currently the the scaling solutions are are offering so maybe in, in comparison i read the other day uh, an article about um how Lens Protocol will, will scale to 50k users on, on Polygon. So if you're putting like 50k versus, um, you know, Twitter, like 240 million, um, this is like a, a huge gap. And my, my main takeaway is that all the scaling solutions currently haven't really been tested with one of those killer apps that you that you mentioned uh, Dustin and that it's still going to take some some time for yeah each of them to prove their their product market fit with uh, uh, with useful apps yeah I, I agree with you in general Mihai I think there's still a lot of testing that's needed for some of these modular solutions and um, l2s that are being built but uh, I mean, when I take a look at the space right now, there's a lot of teams that are starting to build like applications for end users. And right now, they're just looking for blockchains that can meet whatever needs they have right now, right? So like, if you're building this new application, I mean, you're not really focused on what's going to be in the future, like how long it's going to take Celestia to get up and running and how long for it to kind of... Um, just generate that trust, which is just based off time. And what I'm seeing, kind of relating this back to Tippin, is that a lot of these protocols or a lot of these applications are just deciding to launch on Solana for the most part because um, although Solana does have its its problems um, based off performance and just kind of like being online, uh, it is one of the furthest all L1s that has solved a lot of the um, issues that we've kind of been talking about. And it kind of goes back to like where I see builders going to right now. And it's kind of like Solana and Ethereum. And so in the future, I'm, I'm kind of 
maybe pose this question for you guys, but do we see like existing applications eventually pivoting over to some of these new chains or is it going to be like newer applications that end up launching on, on um, newer modular chains or just newer L2s? Um, you know, I guess, like, when, I, when I'm thinking about the future of all this, I'm just so bullish, like, you know, all the scaling solutions and, like, how it's going to all come together, like, in, in the far future. So I, I think, like, uh, people or projects will probably go with what they're most comfortable for now because it's like, okay, we know Solidity. Like, we know we can launch on Ethereum or an L2, um, and that's probably, like, where you'll see it first. Um, but then, but then again, kind of back to what, what Dustin mentioned, I think it's going to be really dependent on the needs of your system because, like, do you need that parallel processing? Do you not? Right. Um, but, but I think, I, I think that it's, it's like, I don't think it's going to be kind of um, having to, it's so hard to, sorry to articulate what I'm trying to say, but I, I think like, um, I, I don't think that some of these like newer, you know, modular design chains or, you know, parallel processing chains are going to necessarily like completely uh, overtake, you know, something like Ethereum that has just gained, you know, so much market share and, you know, so much, I guess clout. You could say every everybody wants to be involved with the Ethereum ecosystem because you know Ethereum is um, like they're committed to scaling and they're committed to iterating. And you know it, it, Ethereum in ten years from now is going to be so different than it is now. So even if you know some of these you know modular or Altel ones look more promising in the short term for uh, some of the things that they can offer that are you know seemingly you know maybe even more advanced than um, the, the the short-term Ethereum roadmap. Uh, I just think that, you know, builders are going to continue to build and including um, on the scaling front for Ethereum, and it's going to continue to attract, you know, a, a huge market share, just like having that um, being known as, you know, the first and, you know, having that ethos of how it got started to be, you know, the world the world computer the, or, or whatnot. So, um, so that was kind of a vague answer, but I, I think I'm just really bullish seeing, like, how... I just how, you know, blockchain design, whether it be brand new um, paradigms and brand new chains or whether it be iterations of the current ones we have today and how what it's going to look like in 10 years when, when hopefully, you know, we've reached a point where we can accommodate, you know, most projects on, you know, a variety of different flavors um, of, of chains and scaling solutions.